The stage is dark, but the conversation is just beginning. Welcome to the Utah Symphony's Ghost Light podcast, a behind-the-curtain look into the world of classical music and the artists who make it. My name is Jeff Counts, I'm your host, and I'm joined today by Dirk Sabatka of Sound Mirror. Welcome, Dirk. Thank you. Great to have Great you. Great to be here, yes, thanks. You are a recording and mastering engineer for Sound Mirror, and I th- imagine that most people think they know what that means, but they probably don't, at least not fully. So can you describe your job for us? What do you do? So um, let's start with I mean, Sound Mirror, the company I'm working for. We specialize in acoustic music, mostly classical music, which is a slightly different job than recording a pop song or a rock right. song. So that's kind of the basis what we will be talking about here. So doing the actual recording, which we'll be doing this week here at Abra Vanel Hall, um, there are kind of two aspects to the job. One is more technical, the other one more artistic, right. musical. Right. So starting on the technical side, it starts with selecting the right equipment mm-hmm. for the job. So... Um, what machines to record to, that is um, dictated by the ultimate format, how the mm-hmm. recording will be released. Yes. Then, obviously, we need to come here since we can't ship the whole orchestra to our studio in Boston. So that would I be mean, wonderful. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. So, but that's, that's part of our job doing in the, cl- in the classical world. You need sure. an acoustic environment, so sure. which means you go to the space with, where the orchestra usually performs or right. to a smaller hall if you do chamber music but you are not in a small recording studio so then the next step is traveling wherever the recording will happen setting up a temporary control room hooking everything up making sure all the equipment is working then it slightly moves into the more artistic side which actually started already also with picking out the equipment sure um so we need to look at the score see the instrumentation what instruments are involved is there any special instrument like this week we have a saxophone right lots of percussion and xylophone there is a chorus is there a soloist involved somewhere and so on so that dictates basically how many microphones we'll need where how it where will they're be placed yeah where they are placed yeah. um exactly so right. right so that all moves into the more artistic mm-hmm. part of the job so yeah. and um so, yeah, that's what we will be doing during the rehearsals. We mm-hmm. set up already. We have the microphones in place where we think from the past they will work. Sure. But once the rehearsals start now, we will listen, obviously, and depending on the repertoire. I mean, if it's a Mozart symphony or a Mahler symphony, you go a little closer with the mic. So basically, sure. you, now we do start our fine tweaking, making adjustments. So it is a living process. Paper. You'll go out there yes. and move things to, absolutely. to adapt. Yes, yeah. yes absolutely. No, yeah. it's, a, it's a work in progress, uh-huh. definitely. Very interesting. That's the next step. Now, then if we move further al- yeah. down the road toward the concerts and so on, mm-hmm. um, there will be conversations happening between the conductor and mm-hmm. us. So right. we will listen there, sit there already during the rehearsals, listen to what Thierry is trying to do with the orchestra, what right. his ideas are, and maybe then start giving him feedback whether it translates onto the tape what he is trying to do mm-hmm. with the orchestra. And sometimes also checking, looking at the score at, and balances between the instruments and Maybe they don't work out for us. So then kind of back and forth start with Thierry going to Thierry, checking with him whether the balances are right in the hall sure, or sure. whether 
they may need to be adjusted for the hall as well. If they are good in the hall, then we have to think about, okay, what can we do to make the balances right for our recording? Sure. So, so, so in a way, the rehearsals are rehearsals for you as well. Absolutely. So yeah. that's yeah. why it's essential for us to be here at the beginning the of entire week absolutely yeah. Recording, uh, yeah when the rehearsals start right once we get into the concerts there will be playback sessions with Thierry mm -hmm. where we have more even more intense discussions about things that did not go so well right then the final part of the project here in Salt Lake City will be the patch session after the second concert now everybody thinks it's a live recording so it's just a concert but that is not two. So right. usually live recording means it will be two, sometimes three performances. And then usually there is a little half an hour or 45 minutes right. period at the end of the last concert where we still have the possibility to go back and cover things that maybe have been covered by a loud cough every night right. or did right. not work out exactly as planned every night yeah so. live in this context does not mean unedited it just means yeah, correct that that's it, it, that you're that. recording concerts instead of sessions but w yeah. i want to i want to come back to that in a few minutes actually um so how many of these projects do you have spinning up at any one time during the course of a year i mean what's the right number for sound mirror to to have right now at sound mirror we have five five people working so uh -huh. it's it's different yeah. teams going to different places Right. at various times so right. um and we do everything from smaller chamber orchestra uh, chamber chamber music sometimes where yeah. only one person is involved where i do everything i just sure. told you about yeah. all by myself yeah or here we are with two people one of us john my colleague and the boss and founder of mm -hmm. sound mirror mm -hmm. he's concentrating more on the technical part whereas sure. i will be concentrating more on the musical part sure then sometimes we have big opera recordings where we go out with three, maybe even four people since it's yeah. so involved with um, just the size of the of setup course, and so on. Of so course, yeah. I would say typically I have um, maybe six, seven recording sessions like what I just described yeah. per year. Per year. And then some just archival broadcast recordings on top of that. So. We'll talk about in a moment what that means for you in terms of the, the work after the mics are turned off because yeah. there's quite a bit of that too. You know, we talked about live recordings and Utah Symphony has been doing quite a bit of that lately yeah. with you. This is a, this is will be the fourth project we've worked mm -hmm. with you on yeah. in the last three years. The disadvantages of live work seem obvious to me. Limited number of captures, the live element certainly brings an aspect of risk to it. But I wondered what you think the, the benefits are. Are there some unseen benefits to recording concerts instead of closed sessions? I think so. I, I like this format, actually. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I think that, to me, it gives me a better picture of what the artistic director, Thierry in this case, mm -hmm. and musicians actually want. If you are in a session situation, who knows when the orchestra last played the piece. Hopefully mm -hmm. they have played it in the recent past, but that's not necessarily true. Some of the session time will be eaten up by re-rehearsing mm -hmm. and getting for the orchestra getting re-familiar with the repertoire. Now, through what I just described, through the whole feedback between Thierry and us and listening to him rehearsing with the musicians, mm -hmm. I get a much clearer picture and idea what he musically is after. Yeah. So that already gives me a head start also for the post-production, for the editing, for then selecting my... Mm -hmm. The, the takes and doing the edit plot. Luckily here in, in Utah, we, the, the musicians have been so generous to let us actually record the rehearsals, which right. 
Yes, it <laughs> dicey spot. Obviously, we never ever will use any of course, part of right. what has been recorded, but right. it gives us already a chance to a play back the rehearsals to Thierry, so mm -hmm. he has some feedback, but also to the musician. Let's say the principal flute or the percussion section. Oftentimes, they will just come in after re the rehearsal and want to listen to a spot. I would imagine that if you're sitting in rehearsals and you are listening closely, you know what Thierry wants in a given section, and that if it doesn't happen for some reason either performance you can advise him that that's something yes. you need to pick up in the patch so absolutely when we talk about the fact that you're rehearsing too i imagine having that a week of time with an ensemble rather than just coming and sitting in a session allows yeah. you to participate in the final project no ab absolutely and yes yes right i mean you you have only a limited amount of time to actually get material to yeah. edit later yeah. on but the whole feedback loop is much larger than of during course. a session. So yeah. as I said, we will sit down with Thierry and listen through the whole rehearsal and listen through the whole concert yeah. and discuss what has been captured already and what not. So that chance you don't really have in in depth in with, a session with situation. session work, right? Now you mentioned editing, so let's talk about that for a second. So. Once the, once the sessions are, well, I, I call them sessions, once the concerts are over and you've got all the tape and you take it all back to Boston with you, you begin the editing process. So how much are you interacting with music director Terry Fisher during the editing work? How collaborative is that part of the process? Yeah, I mean, obviously it is collaborative. Sure. And um, Terry has the ultimate word approving right. the master or not. Right. So, um, and there is a fair amount of back and forth. So, but basically what I have learned during the rehearsals mm -hmm. and during our conversations during this week here. Based on that, I will do my first edit and then basically send this first edit to Thierry. He listens to it, sends me back comments. I'll try and see what I can fix, be it technical things not exactly in tune or not exactly together or sure. whatever. We also take into account this, uh, any comments he has about balances and sound and try to accommodate those and um, uh, send him back a revised version. And um, this, well, continues maybe once, two more times, but then probably we are out of options of right. <laughs> material to use. There's usually so a calendar in play that we well, have to... Well, yeah, I mean, the, yeah. first of all, as you said, the, the, the material is somewhat limited it's so finite I mean, right yeah so right. some things we unfortunately will have to live with yeah and then usually yes there is a release calendar and with a deadline looming which yeah. we have to address so it's it's all incredibly fascinating and i appreciate you giving our listeners kind of a peek into the control room i got another couple of questions for you though before i let you go i know that you've been doing this for a while you trained in europe you've been in the states for how long now since since the 90s right well, actually, yeah, I think my 20th anniversary here. Well, congratulations. That's you. great. So you, you know both sides of the pond, certainly in terms of this industry. I'm sure you've been hearing the dire predictions for the recording world. I mean, can you comment on the state of the industry now and where you think it's headed? Is it as bad as everyone says? Obviously, the whole industry has changed a lot. Pretty so The way it, it yeah. works from yeah. 20 years ago when right. it got started. So, I mean, basically... Back then, the big major labels were the driving force. They were basically financing most of the recordings that were done, right. at least on the classical side. Right. And each major label had their own technical department in-house, so mm -hmm. they would be doing, uh, sending out a recording team doing what we are doing here with you this week. Um, that virtually disappeared. And yeah, there was a slump when the whole way how it worked 
and especially in terms of also financing and where how to find labels and how to get recordings placed um totally changed and and there was a slump period where we definitely felt it and there was not much or not that much recording work but it definitely picked up again so it just yeah. changed the whole format changed now it's basically the artists themselves and orchestras or also chamber music groups or so have undertaken to find the funding for the recordings mm-hmm. themselves and honestly i can't really see that the recording industry will really get out of business i mean there yeah. There, yeah. there always will be demand of for recordings the, i mean the, there are still lots of young or not so young composers writing new music it yeah. needs to be recorded Absolutely. at some point i mean you did a great project the previous one the dawn to dust where three world premieres were recorded here and, yeah. and i mean that's a great service to the composers and getting their music heard mm-hmm. as well as to the audience to open an up and and present to them what actually is happening in the music and composition world right now and so what the ultimate delivery medium will be i have no idea i mean it that's changing all the time it is but i i'm sure there always will be demand for content and i mean basically what we do is creating and recording the content and Mm -hmm. there, there will be always demand for I think it's interesting music. your your point about the fact that it used to be a label driven industry and now it's an artist driven industry yes, from from a lar- to mm-hmm. a large extent and I, maybe that's not such a bad thing and it's certainly an interesting thing. Um, one last question for you, Dirk. This is the one you're most afraid of, I'm sure, because <laughs> yeah. we ask this of everyone who's on the Ghostlight Podcast. I want to know if you've ever seen one. Do you have a paranormal story to share with us today? Um, well, I I <laughs> no, I have not not seen. A ghost. Okay. Now I, I I had occasions where I kind of felt strong, a strong presence mm-hmm. in the room, kind mm-hmm. of where I thought, oh, there must be somebody here, but I didn't yeah. see anybody. Yeah. Now, if it comes to actually seeing a ghost, I only could share a story, which, funny enough, a very good friend of mine just told me three weeks ago. So maybe ah. there was a ghost involved, even since maybe the ghost knew you would ask me this question I'm and sure wanted to did. get into the show. I'm so sure I don't know. <laughs> so I mean this. This friend, it's a very good friend. I uh, We go back a long, long time. And uh, strangely enough, he told me only three weeks ago. So, um, And he's a very down-to-earth, mm-hmm. practical yeah. guy. So yeah. anyway, so just out of college, not a lot of money and having the first job, he was looking for a place to live. Mm-hmm. And also, um, yeah, contacted a real estate person to mm-hmm. maybe find him, help him find something. And... They made an appointment, and when he arrived, the real estate agent said, sorry, well, it just has been rented out to somebody else, but if you would like, you can take a look anyway. So they went in, and it was a gorgeous mansion, and probably what had been a master bedroom suite separated into an apartment uh, right, and so on, right. overlooking a pond, great view, perfect. Anyway, three weeks later, he got a call from the real estate person, asking whether he still was interested uh-huh. and uh, since the apartment had been coming back on the market again and without any hesitation he took it so living there for a few weeks one night actually he wakes up it's freezing cold in the room he looks around sees the window open uh-huh. and an elderly lady looking out the window <laughs> taking in this 
gorgeous view. Certainly, why not? As she'd been doing since the 1850s, probably. Probably, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, he calls out to her, and she doesn't, doesn't react at all, as if he isn't even there, takes in the view, and disappears. <laughs> and so, okay, well, that was the end of that night for him. But anyway, uh-huh. so one of the next days, he actually meets the landlord, who is living in a different part of the house, and... Since it wasn't long that he moved in, asking, okay, how is it going, and so on, so on. Yeah, no, it's fine, just this other night there was, and he didn't even have to finish. So the landlord says, oh, you saw the ghost. Uh Uh-huh. And he said, okay, yeah, I guess I have. Yeah. (laughs) So anyway, so he gave it another try, and so on. And after a couple of weeks, same thing happened again. Yeah. But then the practical guy he is, he just said, okay, well, I mean, if that's as worse, bad as it gets, I just live with it sure and he stayed there for a couple of years yeah and every couple of weeks there was the lady coming looking out the window and disappearing again that is <laughs> that is a fantastic ghost story Dirk. and i tell you what real estate agents you should be forced to disclose these things when you put a place <laughs> up for rent you should let people know there's a ghost <laughs> Dirk sabatka thank you so much for talking about your very fascinating work and sharing that great story with us on the ghost light podcast it's been wonderful to have you my pleasure thank you this weekend, music director Terry Fisher leads the Utah Symphony and Utah Symphony Chorus, prepared by Dr. Barlow Bradford, in Prokofiev's remarkable cantata Alexander Nevsky, with the help of Russian mezzo-soprano Elisa Kolosova and the University of Utah Choirs. This is an all-Prokofiev program, and it will also feature the composer's symphonic suite from the film Lieutenant Kijay. Utah Symphony Concertmaster will also be featured on the program and make her Utah Symphony Concerto debut in a performance of Prokofiev's Concerto No. 2 for violin. This concert will be recorded live for later commercial release. The Ghostlight Podcast is produced by Chad Call. Utah Symphony Utah Opera's season sponsor is the George S. and Dolores Doriacles Foundation. <laughs>